Hi guys, welcome to a brand new episode of NHBF Shines On. I'm Brooke Evans and just like you, I run my own salon. I wanted to have honest conversations with real people in the industry. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Keeks Reed. Keeks is an award-winning journalist with more than a decade's experience covering the hair and beauty industry. I loved our chat. I learned a lot and I hope you will too. We spoke about the role of journalism in hair and beauty, her own journey with her natural Afro hair and what the industry can do to help promote diversity. Today on the podcast, NHBF shines on Keeks Reed. Hello Keeks, it is lovely to have you on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Something a little bit different as well. (laughs) It's exciting. First of all, can you tell people who you are and what you do? Yes, sure. So I'm Keeks. My name's actually Akeisha, but everyone calls me Keeks ever since I started in this industry, actually. So that's now my name. (laughs) I am a digital content specialist. That's the way that I kind of group all the stuff that I do together. It kind of makes me realise why people call themselves creatives because it's just easier. I am a writer, a presenter, and I do consultancy strategy. And yeah, I work with brands and salons as well. Amazing. What made you want to go into hair and beauty journalism? So I actually started out wanting to be a celebrity writer. Mm. So I don't know if you know the journalist Celia Walden. I think she might be married to Piers Morgan. So not biggest fan, but I loved her writing style. And she used to have a column with Glamour where she would just take celebrities out for lunch and interview them. And I was like, that's what I want to do. That's my goal. I don't know what my parents must have thought when I said stuff like that, but they were like, okay. And I started off at the features desk interning with the Sunday Mirror magazine. And then while I was there, I got to work in the beauty department a bit and the fashion department. And then I also interned for Hair Magazine and Insta. And I was like, oh, I might like beauty more than I like celebrity. So when I left uni and I like handed my dissertation in, I immediately started applying for jobs. And I was was like, well, I won't limit myself to just looking at celebrity focused magazines. I'll do others as well. And the job at Black Hair magazine came up and I got that job like before I'd even graduated. They offered me the job. And that was basically my introduction into hair and beauty. And I've just really never left. And that was so I'm 30 now, so that's nine years ago. Oh, that's amazing. As well as you being a journalist, you work as a consultant with a range of companies. Tell us about your area of expertise and how you try to help them. So with brand consultancy, that kind of spun mainly from the protests in 2020 and a lot of brands taking a look inwards and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't represent a lot of people that want to buy our products or that are being alienated by our products or our services I don't speak for all black people and that's why I always lead with it's like I have this very specific experience as a black woman but that just because I am a black woman it doesn't mean that I speak for a Nigerian heritage black woman because I'm a Jamaican heritage black mm-hmm, woman so yeah. I always make that really clear Perfect. I love that. How has the industry received you as a hair and beauty journalist? Have you been well received? 
I think I've been well received as a black beauty journalist. I we're very few and far between as well. So I do think that that's worked to my advantage. Like I'm not going to lie and say that it hasn't. It's worked to my advantage, especially in the last three years. But like before that, I did feel it would be weird being like the only black person in a room a lot of the time. But I came from a an environment where I wasn't a minority because I went to a school that was evenly split down the line between black, Asian ethnic minorities and then white students that I never felt othered there. So I think that was such a healthy environment to grow up in because I never just saw myself as being different. I love that because like you said, you 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 never felt different growing up. I think that naturally is instilled in you when you go on, like you'll take on any challenge or whatever and like you'll feel empowered regardless. And do you think what you've just said happens often in this industry? No. I really don't. And I do think I went to a very, very, not to like put them on blast, but it wasn't a good school. It was such a crap school in South East <laughs> London to the point where like they would like make us do specific things so that they could pass off said. Like <laughs> that's how bad it was. So like having thrived in that environment, I do feel like I could take on anything. But I do think that so many people that are in my position in this industry being even if they're black or if they're another type of minority where they might be not even to do with the race, maybe they've come from an environment where they have felt othered and that's become an insecurity for them. So what is your mission as a journalist in the hair and beauty industry? My mission is to, and I think it's every beauty journalist's mission, so I definitely can speak on behalf of everyone in this camp, is to make hair and beauty as well loved and well respected as fashion and I think that that is definitely happening but when you pick up a magazine like when I'd pick up a magazine when I was younger the fashion pages would be like 20 pages and then there'd be like one offshoot of beauty but the beauty industry is a like multi-billion pound industry that aspects of it thrived during covid and it shouldn't be slept on it's the money we spend on beauty treatments hair nails, skincare, and the money we spend on the high street and on e-tailers is so vast and it's what makes us feel better. Like it just is. That's the feedback that we get from so many different types of readers and viewers from our content. So it's just to kind of get those, you know, bigger companies and those kind of, I'm going to say it, old white men to understand that hair and beauty is not frivolous. So you've spoken a lot about your journey with learning your natural texture hair. Obviously, we had a a massive conversation about this not long ago, and it was great to hear your insight. Just maybe for some people in our audience who don't quite understand it, why do you think black or Afro hair is such a complex issue for so many black women? I think that as a black woman or as a black child, I can speak for myself, I can speak for, you know, my family and other black people that I've spoken to about this but again not the wider society but it seems like a common thing is that we are told from when we're younger about the importance of our hair and that our hair is our beauty almost so if your hair's not done that you don't look good I don't want black hair to be an issue for black women I don't want it to be this complex thing that we have to constantly think about at all and we can just have fun with it like we paint our nails like we put makeup on we just have fun with it and it's not something that 
represents our identity because that's how it's been so entwined for so long. And I just think that once we take those layers off and and make it not be that deep, we're not going to be able to not have it be an issue. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear that so many people with textured hair in that room explain that, you know, you'd go to church and if it wasn't done or wherever you'd go out, you were automatically looked at as you weren't done. And I just think for somebody who knows actually how much work you have to put into doing your hair, it's not a case that you can just chuck your hair on top of a bun like me, just sat here now. And, you know, you feel okay about it. It should be like that though. Like I shouldn't feel like I couldn't just chuck my hair into a bun and go out and it would be okay. Like, I would love that. I remember reading so many things about like shaggy hair and bed head when I was younger. And I was like, if I went out with my hair, like if I haven't worn a headscarf at night, and my mum would disown me is what would happen. So like those kinds of things, that's what contributes to this idea that it's an, an issue for us or a thing that we have to deal with. Yeah, My mission, if I was talking about being a black beauty writer, would be to make sure that that isn't as deep for us anymore. What do you think about the industry bodies like the NHBF and how they're approaching issues like black hair and black skin care? I think that the NHBF, I have not been paid to say this, (laughs) but I think that it's such an amazing industry body. The things that they did, especially in regards to like COVID and like making sure that businesses knew where they stood, their legal rights, all those kinds of things in general as an industry body, I think is amazing. I think like every industry body, it took them a while to understand how much is needed to be taught and spoken about in regards to to Afro hairdressing. But now it's happening. It's definitely taken flight. And I love that. The thing is, when it comes to Afro hairdressing, in my opinion, and the wider industry, it's like twofold. So there's the way that black hairdressers are treated And then there's also the way that black clients are seen within salon because of the lack of training for non-black stylists. That's been dealt with 100%. And in regards to the new standards that have been introduced, you can see that there's a change being made there. But I also want to make sure that Afro hairdressers that haven't received any formal training, because that's most Afro hairdressers that are black, They've taught by their aunties, they're self-taught, they've watched their mums do their hair and they've learned how to do it that way, have, in my opinion, traditionally been quite looked down on by trained hairdressers in the same way that the wider society might look down on a person that hasn't gone to university versus a person that has. And I just think that shouldn't be the case because if you can do hair, you can do hair. If you're a great hairdresser, you're a great hairdresser, whether you were trained at Sassoon or your mum taught you in her kitchen. And if you can braid the same and you can cut the same, why should there be any difference? It's a craft. But in regards to training non-black hairdressers, I think that we are making real change. Yeah. And I think it's well received on all parties here. Like, you know, I hope that the standards that are changed in colleges now are absolutely implemented and it's not just overseen Mm -hmm. because there's somebody myself who is now looking down avenues to get education in Afro and textured hair. It's actually 
especially like my demographic where I am, I'm having to travel out, which is absolutely fine. But I know myself, I'll do it. But will everybody in my area do it is a different question. And then it's like, will people think if they're in a tiny little town and there's only two black people that they know, will they think it's worth it? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Like, will they think it's worth learning or now going back to school to learn that when they might get only £40 worth of business from them in a quarter. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one, isn't it? Like, I, I live in an area very similar to to what you explained. And for me, anybody who comes in my salon, whether it's one person or 50 people, if I can't do their hair, that's a problem on me, not on them. So, yeah, I think as business owners, we need to take ownership and, you know, educate ourselves in whoever walks through that door that you'll be able to do their hair. And I think that goes on you, not on them. I think it just depends on what sort of person you are, doesn't it really? I hope that you are not the exception, but I I have a sneaky suspicion that you might be the exception at this point, but I hope that you become the rule. What does your family think about you being a hair and beauty journalist? Do they take you seriously? That is such an interesting question. They do now. When I first said that I wanted to be a journalist, like not even in hair and beauty, my parents were like, okay, you have a year to get a real job. Because I worked all the way through uni and interned and then did my uni. Like I was so set on being a journalist. But my dad's an electrical engineer. My mum isn't, well, she was a nurse. She's retired now. And my sisters are in the NHS, like, Literally, my whole family have vocations. And I was like, I want to be a writer. Like, they were like, what? No. So they gave me a year and then they said that I had to do my PGCE to be a teacher. So I had like a deadline. Yeah. And then I, as I said before, I got my first job before I'd even graduated. So they knew that I was serious on that. My dad's most proud moment is definitely when I interviewed Angela Bassett. And I was like, dad, I've graduated university like I've gotten good jobs he's like no this is this is it he sent a picture of us to like everyone that he knew it was amazing (laughs) so funny so obviously you've had like a wild journey since you've started and you've you've done all sorts which we absolutely love seeing you do what is next for you and what would you like to accomplish in the industry I want to leave this industry in a better shape than I joined it and in regards to beauty journalism. And one thing that I have always noted in the industry is how scared my white beauty writer friends have felt talking about black hair and black skin. And I want to accomplish, hopefully, and help make that less of a thing for them because it's not a thing for me to write about straight hair and white skin and you know, incorporate all races and all ethnicities into my writing. I feel like I do do that by being quite open to questions. I never ever am offended by a question that any of my writer friends ask me about black hair or black skin, because if that's informing them so that they can write about it better and that the burden is almost taken off me to always have to write about my blackness. Perfect. (laughs) I love that. I think it's interesting you touched on that because obviously being on social media, you know, TikTok and stuff like that, and you go onto the comments and 
like for somebody who, you know, has just got two French plaits in their hair. And I'm literally like, this is wild because that poor person then feels like they've done something extremely wrong. But actually, do you know what? In the comments, it's really interesting because a lot of the time it's not someone of an ethnic background that's saying these things. It's someone who is white and is thinking that they're preaching to the world. Yeah. And then you've got actually some comments in there coming from a black person that is like, you wear your hair how you want or, you know, this is absolutely fine. You know, I think maybe that person who was saying they couldn't wear it like that has had comments against them before. And it it spirals, doesn't it? Exactly. And then that's perpetuated in the comments. And then other people then read those comments and go, I can't wear those hairstyles. Don't get me wrong, Brooke. There are some hairstyles you shouldn't, some races shouldn't wear. Yeah. And that goes from me as well with other ethnicities. Just to touch on what you've just said, what sort of hairstyles do you think people shouldn't be wearing? Ooh. Put it out there. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm asking these deep questions now. Mullets? But no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay, when it comes to braids, braids have been worn for literal centuries and centuries, but all different types of people but where the problem comes because I can speak about braids specifically because I think that's where you find the most like backlash Mm -hmm. where the problem comes is in the past I've taken out braids because I felt like they weren't they looked too ethnic like formal events and stuff like that if I wore braids to a job interview I would feel like I was not properly equipped my hair wasn't straight I didn't look refined almost enough okay but then if a white person or a non-black person wore braids then they would feel fine because that's one of their you know styles that they might have in their roster and I think that when you take a style that someone's been persecuted for having like dreadlocks braids slicking edges afros and then you wear it and you are you know lauded for it or you make it into a new trend, or you're changing the name of it, that's when it becomes a problem, in my opinion. If I wear dreadlocks and I'm called dirty, but then someone wears dreadlocks on a catwalk and it's a new trend, that's a problem. Because why can't I wear it? It then becomes, is it because of my race? Is it because of my background? Is it because of my culture? But you take it out of the culture, then it's cool. So I, I think that those kinds of cultural appropriation moments are the ones that need to die off but wearing a french braid or wearing a dutch braid or wearing a plait in a ponytail is not for me cultural appropriation it's just not but then wearing an afro as a fancy dress teeters the line a little bit (laughs) do you know what i mean do you know what i've never heard somebody explain the braiding situation like that. I've always heard that, you know, it's not great for your hair type. You know, if you've got Caucasian hair, you know, it's it's a protective hairstyle. So I've never actually heard the reason. And that's just blown my mind. And I oh. hope that everybody that's listening to this now understands the reason why. Not changing it. I knew that obviously, you know, the cultural appropriation, changing the name, but I've never heard it explained like that. And that has just made so much sense. The fact that you were persecuted for it. Like anyone who's listened to this will 100% get that message because it's like something has just gone, oh yeah, of course, that is so true. Why would you do that? Yeah. 
good. Has someone said anything like that to you when you've had your hair in a in a hairstyle? Oh, the one that I've heard the most, and but not to me, but just like in comments and stuff like that, is about black women straightening their hair. Right. If we can't have our hair like this, then how can black women straighten their hair? And that's okay. <laughs> and it's like, I would never have even known what straightening was if centuries ago someone didn't go the standard of beauty is to have straight hair. Yeah. <laughs> so don't blame me for this standard of beauty. <laughs> or like when black people dye their hair blonde, like, oh, black people's hair aren't that isn't naturally blonde. And it's like, okay, again, let's blame Hitler for making that <laughs> standard of beauty. Well, we are coming to an end of the podcast, but at the end of every podcast, we do a quick fire questions where you just respond with a couple of words or a sentence or whatever. So okay. to start off, what is your favourite beauty product? At the moment, I'm really enjoying the Sunday Riley Afterglow Vitamin C Cream. Mm. What is the worst haircut you yourself has ever got? I definitely think it would be the one that I gave to myself when I was six. Basically, you know when you're on school and you do cutting and sticking? Yeah. I'd finished my cutting and sticking, so I was like, mm, what should I do? So I took my plait, I had my hair in plaits, I took the one right in the middle and cut it right at the root <laughs> and then just had my plait in my hand. Oh I my went God. home and my mum was obviously fuming. Um, I didn't go home with the plait, but yeah, it was just fuming because I just had a tuft of hair for ages. And I think that the hair in that part of my head is still grows like the thickest in my crown. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, great hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> what is your morning routine? I get up every single day, including Saturdays and Sundays at 7am. And then I will either go make a coffee, get back into bed or I'll get up and do a workout. Oh. Because I have to work out in the morning, otherwise I don't really do it. Yeah. And then I have a shower, I do my skincare, and then I'll be at my desk by like 8.30. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my nieces and nephews, 100% of the people that they've they're grown into. And then of myself, I'm most proud of my career and, and what I've made for myself and that I keep myself alive every month. <laughs> you should be proud of that, definitely. Thank you. What is your hidden talent? I'd say when I was younger, I was able to burp words. <laughs> so people at school would like come up to me and be like, can you burp this sentence? And I would. <laughs> and I think I probably could still do it now, but my digestive tract would hate me, so... <laughs> So I can't ask for an example then, no. <laughs> um, absolutely not. That would be the end of my career, I think. <laughs> when was the last time you stayed in something for too long? Like a job, a relationship, an event or anything? All my jobs I've stayed in the perfect amount of time. I've got a really good gut feeling, so that's fine. I think a relationship probably. I was in my first relationship ever from when I was 15 to 22. Okay. That was a long time. Mm. And that was probably longer than... If I ever had children, I would forbid them from dating someone for too long while they're that young. Yeah. 
because you don't learn how to talk to whatever sex you're attracted to. You just don't learn how to be social. I was such a weirdo. I didn't know how to talk to men. <laughs> so I still am. People still say that I am a weirdo, but yeah, definitely a relationship. Where do you see yourself in five years time? Five years time, I'll be 35, which is mental. That's like nearly 40. Like not to, it's not age shaming myself, but it's just like, rah, that's, a, that's old. <laughs> So I hope that I will still have an amazing career that will just take in flight. I hope that I have a dog and oh. maybe a child. That makes me feel sick, though. <laughs> but that's like a normal age span to have a child between 30 and 35. So if I'm going to have one, it'll be them. And like a nice house in London. That's where I see myself. Well, I hope that you achieve all of that. Thanks, Brooke. It's been amazing to speak to you. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do a podcast with you, which is great. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun chatting with you. Thanks so much, Keeks, for joining us on the podcast. That's it for today's episode of NHBF Shines On. In our next episode, we'll continue to bring you the stories of the brightest lights in the hair and beauty industry, helping you to grow your business and with the help of NHBF, chart your course to salon success. Until next time, goodbye.